0: Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak through your word this morning, that your spirit, he would be active, that he would be imparting life. And that Lord, as the passage reminds us, may you keep us from being taken captive by that which is hollow and deceptive. Instead, Lord, may you give us truth and give us life through the word, through your son, and by the spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. So, up to this point in the book of Colossians, Paul has kind of been um, building his point to get to here. Right? Every letter in the New Testament has an occasion. Why uh, the apostle wrote it. And this one, like many of the others, was to confront false teaching uh, that has crept into the church. And that is one of the hallmarks of the New Testament and the Bible as a whole. And that is this. What you believe matters. Ideas matter. They have consequences. Unlike many ancient religions, Christianity made rather bold claims concerning universal truth. And those claims were that truth not only exists, but that you can know it, and you then should live according to it. Truth was of the greatest importance. Universal truth was not that big of a deal for the Romans. In fact, they had this tradition as they would conquer people, they would take their gods of the conquered people and bring them into their pantheon as long as they would also take the many Roman gods into their worship as well. And now this was a problem uh, for the Jews and for the Christians because they were most stubborn. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't worship uh, the Roman gods. For this reason, the Romans gave special exception to the Jews. They didn't have to do that. So much of the conflict you see in the New Testament uh, between the Jews and the early church is because the Christians wanted to be under that same exemption for having to worship the Roman gods. And the Jews were like, that's not Judaism. They shouldn't get that exception. He says the Jews and the Christians refused to compromise on religious truth. Well, Rome practiced what could be called some early forms of tolerance and inclusion. Truth in the universal sense wasn't really valued by the Romans. And you pick that up with Pilate's famous retort to Christ before he's crucified. What is truth? What does it even matter? What are you talking about? And so today, as the West is being shaken in so many different ways, we are returning as if we are are back to the first couple centuries of the church where relativism and tolerance and inclusion were the uh, order of the day. And so there's this myth out there that we are progressing. Like we're, we're moving forward into history, but we're actually regressing. We're going back to a time of pre-Christianity. This shows so much of how many of those who fashion themselves as um, intelligent today are actually rather ignorant of basic history. There's nothing new really under the sun, And if you think for a moment that the injustices of the Christian West were bad, and some of them were pretty bad, you better hope that the reign of this relativism isn't half as bad as the reign of relativism of Rome. Their evils were absolutely unspeakable. There's a reason why Christianity conquered Rome, and that's because it was a despicable place to live for just about everyone, except for a very small elite. Again, study your history, you'll see that for yourself. But with that foundation that ideas matter, truth is real, truth is knowable, and truth is even worth dying for, there were still temptations within the early church. These deceptive philosophies had a way of creeping in uh, to the church, and they made their way in specific into the churches of Laodicea and Colossae. Jesus had warned us before he left. He said that false teachers would come. They would introduce destructive heresies. And this is an ever-present reality for every age of the church. It waxes and wanes, it it shifts from age to age as to how the false teaching enters, but there's always some false teaching that the church needs to guard against. And we're no exception. And so Paul has painstakingly built the foundation here of the Christian faith to get us to this point in chapter 2. He establishes in chapter 1 his apostleship. That is, he is a messenger of the Lord. He speaks with the full authority of God. That's why we have his letters and we say this is the word of God. He is, in essence, a New Testament prophet. He reminds the church that they are called to walk in a worthy manner, that they can live lives that are pleasing to God. He then gives that condensed summary of the Christian faith, of the gospel message in Colossians one. 15 through 20, that Christ is the creator of everything. He's the sustainer of everything, that everything exists for him, that he will inherit everything, that he died for everything and is reconciling all things to himself. Basically, he's the preeminent Lord. He's first. And then he moves on to say that that Christ is the mystery of God that has been revealed. It's the mystery of God that has saved you, his people. And then he starts warning them. Don't be deluded by false arguments, false ideas. Because in Christ, you have all the knowledge and wisdom that you need. And that is where we begin today. The universal lordship of Christ. He has rivals. Those rivals try to infiltrate the church with plausible arguments. And thus, the church is called to be on its guard. Always. Always on its guard. These false ideologies are called deceptive in this passage. In other words, they are not things you should play around with. They are not things that you should find one shred of truth to be like, hey, look, there's some truth here. We should build on this. They're not to be used as analytical tools, but they are to be destroyed because in Christ is everything that you need. So today we're going to spend some time doing that. All right, my job, as we saw two weeks ago, is to present you, Christ Bible Church, as mature in Christ. And part of the way I do that, is do what Paul does here, is to warn you of deceptive philosophies. And it would be very easy for pastors like me, and I fear most pastors do this, is I could just spend all my time talking to you about the deceptive philosophies in the first century, and it would be really, really safe. And it would be of little benefit to you because they're not a threat. So today we're going to see the how of not being taken captive, and then we're going to spend some time identifying some of those ideologies or deceptive philosophies that want to take you, your kids, and your grandkids captive. So first, we see that we have received Christ. The first key to not being taken captive by deceptive ideas is to have received Christ. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. Therefore, Paul says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Note that Paul says you have received Christ. That is, it has been given to you. It's not something that you take for yourself. But Paul here. As the apostle, is the one who has taught the church, he has, with the other apostles, laid the foundation in the tradition of what the Christian church has believed now for 2,000 years. This is the Christ you have been given. And he identifies this Christ even more to say that this Christ is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Why does he say that? Well, Paul, having been a really good Pharisee, would not describe anything as Lord without knowing what he meant. Lord was the personal name of God. He says, this is Jehovah. This is Yahweh, Christ the Lord. Christ Yahweh, Christ Jehovah. And if you have any doubt if that's what he means, look at verses 9 and 10. For in him the, full, or the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Who is this Christ that you have received? He is God. He is fully God. Yes, he's also truly man, but he is fully God. And you have received him. And Paul even goes so far as to say, you are being filled by this Christ. And so, you have received this Christ. And as we saw again two weeks ago, that means that he indwells us. That is the foundation. If if he is indwelling you, and you are dwelling in him, You will not be taken captive by these deceptive philosophies. That in Christ, in Christ in us, we are established in the faith. And the other thing about having received this Christ, and we should make this very, 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 very plain, this means you don't get to make your own version of Jesus. You don't get this Jesus, well, I don't like this part, so I'm going to chop that off. I don't like that part, and I'm going to chop that off. And this is the Jesus I like. No, You have been given Jesus. There's a testimony of him in Scripture. This is the Jesus that you have received. You don't get to stand over that Jesus and say who he is. He, him and him alone is the standard. To put it another way, you don't need more than Scripture. And anyways, how are you going to get more than that picture of Jesus that we got in Colossians 1, 15 through 20? You're not. So that's the basis. What about the threat? Paul turns his attention to that occasion in verse 8. He says this See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The threat is empty, deceptive, and human philosophies. As I said, this is always a threat to the church, it's always been knocking. Uh, at the door of the church. And to some extent, Satan has been really successful at introducing a uh, false teaching into the church. You can look at many of the denominations who are really, in practical terms, not Christian anymore. But to another extent, all of Satan's efforts have been futile. The church will never truly fall. The truth stands, or the church stands by Christ and his strength. But let's break this down a little bit more. What does Paul mean here by philosophies? Paul is not referring to what we would generally call uh, philosophy, the academic discipline of studying metaphysics, that's the origin of the universe, epistemology, the study of truth, ethics, what is right and wrong, or aesthetics, what is beautiful. Though there are certainly many schools in the study of philosophy, that would fall under Paul's warning here. But the, the discipline of philosophy itself is not what Paul is warning us against. Rather, the term philosophy here is a way of thinking and living that is contrary to Christ. It is the how and the why of, why, of how and why you live your life. That is what he is referencing here. So you can think of terms like, we have a philosophy of doing business. Or you have a philosophy of life, how and why you live your life and make the decisions that you make. We have a philosophy, and we're just working on this as elders, a philosophy of children's ministry. It's the how and the why of what we do. And of course, high-end academic philosophies inform these things as as they trickle down into popular society. But it's broader than just what you find in the university. So we're back to this idea. Truth matters. And ideas matter because the ideas you believe have directions. They set you on a course that you start to walk down. That's why if, if you follow the seeming never-ending controversies among Christian leaders, some people will sometimes be shocked that some guy eventually renounces the faith, and other people will be saying, we've been warning you about that for years, because they've been on a trajectory and it's actually rather clear if you see the logical conclusions of their arguments of where they're going. Ideas matter. Paul also warns us that these philosophies are empty and deceptive. What does that mean? Well, there's an intentional contrast here that these philosophies are empty, or, as other translations put it, hollow. That means they have no real truth in them, no substance to them. They don't bring what they promise to bring. There's no peace or truth in them. They are destructive. To put it another way, once you adopt them, they leave you empty. They don't solve any of your problems. But the contrast to the word empty here is that throughout the, the surrounding verses here, we see this fullness in Christ. So, so these philosophies are empty, but Christ is full. Right, Colossians 1.19 speaks of the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ. And then Colossians 2.9, that is repeated. The fullness of deity is in Christ. And then as you move along in those, uh, those verses, he is then filling you. So the contrast, empty philosophies, or you can be filled with the fullness of Christ. And so we think these worldly philosophies will help us, but they're lies. And all we have or and all we need is in Christ. And finally, Paul says these philosophies are according to human traditions in the elemental spirits of the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, human traditions, that is, they're long established. You can trace them back. They're being passed down from generation to generation. That makes them appear that they have some weight to them, some validity. We like old things. And though they are human traditions, Paul says they actually come from elemental spirits. A reference that these ideologies, these ways of life, are actually demonic in origin. As I've said before, this world is far more spiritual than we like to admit. That does not mean that there's a demon under every rock or around every corner. It doesn't mean that everyone who teaches these philosophies is possessed by a demon. But rather, Satan, from the garden onward, is known as the father of lies. That where do lies ultimately find their origin? In him. In Satan. And This is his tactic. These empty philosophies are a demonic worldview. Once you understand that, you don't play around with them. You don't try to find the one shred of truth in them. You get rid of them because they're empty and they can take you captive. Because as you sow these into your heart and into your mind, they lead you farther and farther away from God and you will make decisions two, five, and ten years from now that you would never imagine today that you would ever make. Ideas have a direction, and so it's my job to warn you about them. And so we've established here, it's not new, it's not a new problem. There have always been deceptive ways of thinking and living. They like to get a foothold in your hearts, in your families, in your churches, your schools, and then people are carried along by them. Ideas matter. Here are the words of Francis Schaefer on this. But the main point is this. Being conformed to the world spirit does not refer merely to outward acts. The real battle is in our thought world. Resisting in our thought life is essential. Whether we are conformed externally will always depend on whether we have or have not conformed internally to the spirit of the world. The battle is of the mind. Or to put it as Paul says in Romans 12, first you need to renew your mind and then you can offer your life as a living sacrifice to the Lord. If you are not renewing your mind, if your mind is lost to the world, the outward acts will show, or as Jesus put it, you will know a tree by its fruit. You can see what a person is by how they live. So the battle is that of ideas that inform life. So it was good that Phil had Ardell read Second Corinthians 10, the command to take every thought captive, not some, every thought captive, and to destroy arguments. Right? If you don't have room for that in your Christianity, you're lacking something. One of the calls of a minister is to destroy and obliterate and tear down stupid ways of thinking and living. It's one of the things I, I like to do. So, <laughs> I'm going to give you today uh, four such philosophies that I want you to, w- to be warned about. I could have given you more but then we'd be here all afternoon. So I'm going to give you four. These four could go by many different names. These are labels that I'm applying to them, but hopefully you'll see that these philosophies uh, actually exist. And I give them to you out of a spirit of love and concern. I don't want you to be taken captive. And if a pastor, me or any other pastor, is unwilling to warn you against this, he is a derelict shepherd. It is our job to protect the flock. And one of the ways we do that is by naming names, as it were. Unfortunately, I've seen people who, two, five, five, ten years later, after they've gone down these paths, have walked away from the faith, have made decisions that you never thought they would have made. And it breaks my heart every time. But after today, everyone sitting here, you will not be able to say you were not warned. The first such philosophy is what I call the victimhood philosophy. This is a very destructive philosophy to our relationships, to your marriages, and to society as a whole. This philosophy has its roots in the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, that man is ultimately oppressed by society. His ideas are then picked up by Karl Marx. And then they're picked up later here in America by the Frankfurt School called Cultural Marxism. Uh, But we have trained an entire generation lately to find their different identities. You take this identity and make that central to who you are. And then find out how you are being oppressed so that you can always be angry at somebody else. That you are always the victim and never the perpetrator. They tally up imagined grievances that are everywhere and they become really small, unbearable people to be around. There's no joy because they're always being wronged. People who internalize their victimhood often do so with those perceived slights that make a mockery of real victims. As a pastor, I've worked with real victims. There's a difference. But as I say that, we should note also that even today, real victims can take on the victimhood philosophy. And even though they've been wronged, doing another wrong doesn't make anything better. And people who anybody who takes on this ideology, that they have always wronged but never wrong, are devoid of any real joy, and are motivated by a need to get even, and to be heard in their anger, and to get their pound of flesh. I want you to think very carefully on this. Why do you think the Bible warns us against not taking vengeance again and again and again? Why? Because when we are wronged, real or imagined, we feel justified in acting however we want. The victimhood mentality says, you are, you can do whatever you want if you've been wronged, and God says, no, you can't. You simply cannot do that. So contrary to popular belief, real victims or imaginary victims don't have any special access to the truth. And they're often the last people who should guide us into formulating fair and just policies because they've been hurt and they want their pound of flesh. So the Bible repeats again and again, don't seek vengeance, don't seek vengeance. Be impartial when you're in the place of justice and judging. Why? Because those who have been wronged aren't impartial. Why does Jesus say if you've been slapped in the cheek that you should turn and offer the other cheek? Because it's not natural to us. But this is Christianity 101. People who have been wronged, the evil that has happened to them should be dealt with. But they are not the standard for how you deal with the problem. There are a few things, making this real practical, there are a few things that will more radically destroy your marriages than if you start to view yourself as the victim and your spouse as the oppressor. Now, there are situations where that's true. But what I'm talking about here is reading negative things into everything your spouse does and then convincing that because he or she has done that, that you can act however you want. I've seen it a million times. I've felt it in my own heart. If you think that he or she is always wrong and you are always the wronged, you need to repent. It will destroy your family and you will not imagine the decisions you will make when we see stupid sayings like believe all women, which are just as stupid as believe all men, because as far as I can tell, neither sex has reached perfection. Both are sinners. Brothers and sisters, this is no way to live. The Bible teaches us to start with humility, to repent of your own sins, knowing that God has forgiven you more than you will ever forgive anybody else to remove the log from your own eye first, and then you can offer correction. But if you are not in that spirit, even when wronged, then you should probably keep your mouth shut until you can get in that spirit. That keeps us from making, being a victim central to who we are. Because the truth of the matter is, there is only one truly sinless person. And he willingly became a victim for you. The second Deceptive philosophy is what I like to call the gospel of Disney, the follow-your-heart gospel. This is perhaps the most unquestioned and pervasive philosophy of our day. Our kids are literally catechized in it from the moment they turn on the TV. Every kid's show uh, promotes this. That the good life is found in personal happiness, and that personal happiness is found in following your heart or following your own truth. You see, when we reject God and his external standards, something else always moves to fill the vacuum. You do you and all that nonsense. This is put forward as the path to enlightenment into true happiness, and it is pervasive, but every study shows that as we have been following our own heart, we have never been less happy as a people. The thing you seek after most often gives you, uh, or often eludes you, the most. And so we become miserable people. You, you don't get happiness from doing whatever you want. You don't get happiness from w- within. You cannot become your own God. Your shoulders are far too small to bear that weight. This is how we ended up with being able to say that boys are girls and girls are boys. We even have now in schools, we have kids identifying as different species of animals while teachers protect them. Right? This is obvious madness. Like, it shouldn't be controversial for me to say this. But we've been indoctrinating whole generations that you can, quote, be whatever you want and you should follow your heart to whatever end and then you wonder why we get absurdities. It's, it's really, really clear. And so let me state this um, plainly. You can't be whatever you want. I cannot be a five-foot-two Filipino woman. I cannot do it. No amount of butchery from greedy surgeons or lies from woke university professors will ever change that reality. And this is why, again, study after study shows that people who try to do this become more likely to kill themselves. They were sold a bill of goods. And I say this, again, because I desire your good. And lies are not good for you. The Bible tells us that our hearts are fallen, our hearts are easily deceived, and must not be the foundation of our lives. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Desperately sick and deceitful above all things. There's something you should follow. No, probably not. Learn to measure your thinking and your feeling by the et- eternal and external standard of God's Word. Transform it and renew it by grace alone through faith alone. Pastor Samuel Rutherford put it this way He said, Your heart is not the compass that God sails by. If your God never disagrees with you, I've got bad news for you. You're your own God, and you're not God. The third philosophy. I must warn you about today, is that of self-fulfillment. This is the idea that your life is about becoming the best version of, your health, or of yourself, that your happiness and sense of fulfillment is where you will find all of your, your meaning in life. And there's many ways you can, you can do that. You can do that through your work. You can do that through experiences, success, fame, money, sex, you name it. And we search desperately for that deeper meaning and we move from one thing to the next. You can think of Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs. At the top of the pyramid of life is if you are self-actualized, whatever that means. It's the best version of your spouse. So you're told, in pop psychology again and again, that if you want to reach that, you need to surround yourself with friends and a spouse who makes you feel happy and will make you a better you. And it sounds innocent. It It really does. But we hear, I mean we hear it in many a romantic comedy. I like myself better when I'm with you. I'm a better me with you. I like the way I feel with you. Do you hear how selfish that is? You say, I love you because of the person you make me to be. No, what you love is yourself. You love the feeling that person is giving you. You don't actually love the person. You're seeking something for yourself from them. That's not actual love. Take a a famous uh, example of this ideology. The world-renowned singer, Adele, commenting on her recent divorce and the impact it had on her child. This is an excerpt uh, from an article. Adele says her upcoming album was written with her son in mind so that when, or quote, when he's in his 20s or 30s, end quote, he can try to understand, quote, who I am, and why I voluntarily chose to dismantle his entire life in the pursuit of my own happiness. I thank her for being honest. Many people live that way. She says that with pride, like this is a self-evident truth. I destroyed your life, child, so that I could be happy. This is... The idea that self-love is the highest of love. That you can't really love others until you love yourself first. And you should note, the Bible posits the exact opposite. The Bible assumes that you will love yourself, so it commands you to love your neighbor as you love yourself, because you're already going to love yourself. No one has to encourage you to do that. (laughs) But we make life all about self-fulfillment. My happiness, no matter what, are the cost to others. And it is an objectively ugly and hate-filled way to live, and yet it creeps into many Christian homes and destroys many marriages. We think that our spouse and our children prevent our happiness, and so they must be sacrificed at the altar of what I want. If you think that's actually going to work out, and you want an extended discussion of that, go listen to our 13-14 weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a chasing after the wind. It slips through your fingers. You think it's going to satisfy, and it doesn't. People on their deathbed don't sit there and and wish they made more money or were more self-actualized. They weep over their broken family and friendships. We need to stop buying into the culture's lie that uh, love is internal. The Bible says, for example, that children are a blessing. And it says that finding your life is only done by laying it down for others. We cannot buy into this idea that children prevent us from being our best selves. No, children are the norm in the expectation of a sexual union, not an inconvenience. They are God's design and God's blessing. And if you view it as anything less than that, then you have a deceptive philosophy in your heart that you need to kill. It's not my words, it's the Bible's words. Children are a blessing. And the Bible also tells us that there is no greater love than laying down someone else's life for your happiness. Nope, that's not it. It says there's no greater love than this, that you lay down your life for others. True love is other-directed. The fourth philosophy, trying to take you captive, and that's taking much of the Western church captive at the moment, is what I call the uh, social justice gospel. It goes by many names. You could call it wokeness. You can call it deconstructionism. You can call it leftism. I don't care what you call it. It's there. This is the idea that the West needs to be deconstructed for it is systemically unjust. And the solution is that we replace it with a Marxist view of society and justice, ignoring the fact that Marxism is Quite literally, the most deadly and oppressive philosophy that's ever existed. If you want to see historic sins, look there. And this system argues that your savior, the way to make society more just, is to give more power to the state. And so this is where you really have to pay attention. To say on the one hand, the system is oppressive, and on the other hand, that the solution is to give more power to the system, is beyond idiotic. It just doesn't add up. And this is often, unfortunately, baptized into Christianity because the Bible does have a lot to say about justice. It has a lot to say about mercy. It has a lot to say about caring for the poor and the oppressed. But the problem is is that the Bible uses fundamentally different definitions of those terms than those in Marxism do. And we need to recognize that. Now, in Marxism, justice is defined as having the government steal from your neighbor so it can give it to me. The Bible says that that's wrong. Two different definitions of justice. Marxism says that to remedy past sins, we should commit present sins. That, of course, is stupid. And, of course, we hear that Jesus was a socialist. Which, where do you even begin with such things? This ideology has a major foothold in the church. It even, brothers and sisters of Christ Bible Church, it has a big foothold in our denomination. I'm working on it. (laughs) The solutions are offered, are are almost always give more power to the government. And again, read a history book, you'll realize that's probably not a great idea. The late, great, uh, famous theologian R.C. Sproul, said that one day he got into a car with another uh, passed away great theologian Francis Schaeffer, and he asked him, he says, What's the greatest threat facing the church moving forward? And he says that without a hesitation, Schaeffer said, "Stateism." What's statism? It's worshiping the state. If you get rid of God, something fills the void. It's either going to be the self or it's going to be the state. And he said that in the 80s. He was a prophet of his day. Christians know that true justice is measured by God's standards and not Marx's. That a utopia can never come by the state, but the state is really good at bringing hell to earth. That a utopia will only come when Christ returns and establishes his eternal kingdom. Social justice as currently defined by those I'm talking about is anti-Christ. And if you go down that path, again, ideas have consequences, you will eventually deny the gospel. It's already happened. I wish I could go more in depth on this. There's more we could unpack, but again, you're probably getting hungry. Uh, If you want more resources on this, I've got a lot I could point you in the direction towards. But these are some, and I want to stress some of the ideologies that are taking people captive today. And they are dangerous because they offer you something you want. They offer you something that sounds good but they can never deliver on it. And so you must guard your heart against it. But how? How? Paul says of these philosophies this, they are not according to Christ. They are not according to Christ. So we're back to Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Knowing the true Christ and his universal lordship helps to prevent us from thinking in these bits and pieces and being taken captive. Knowing that Christ is crucified. Christ is risen. Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Christ rules over everything. That Christ is in you and that Christ is returning will be the foundation to prevent you from being taken captive. Christ in Christ alone. And the command to renew your faith in him daily. To confess, to repent, and to follow. If you build your life on these other ideologies, you are building them upon the sand. And the ruin of your house will be great, even if on Sunday you say, I follow Jesus. If you're going with these philosophies, the ruin of your house will be great. But Christ says this, Everyone then who hears those words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Build your life on Christ and Christ alone, and you can withstand any of the storms that may or may not find you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. We thank you that you have invited us to build our lives upon that word and to trust in our Savior, to be filled by him and in him. So, Lord, I ask that you would do just that for the people sitting here today, for the people of Christ Bible Church, that you would keep them by your power, that you would keep them by your grace, that you would keep them by your spirit. Lord, I ask that many sitting here today, would be presented to you on that day, mature and blameless, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen.